So we begin with our uh, call to worship from the story of the prodigal son. And uh, the prodigal son is such a picture of humanity. Uh, Like Ruth, it is a story of humanity. It is told from the human perspective. And if we really take time to think about it, especially uh, as we're going through Ruth, that is our story. Um, we're, we're familiar with it, um, but the word prodigal is an interesting word. I'm one of those uh, word nerds that like etymology.com is one of my favorite websites. Uh, if you don't know what that is, then you're not in the club. Um, but I love to find out where the, the, the root of a word uh, comes from and how it's been used over time and how it's, how it's evolved. But the, the root of the word prodigal, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Latin word, means to, to drive out, but also to use up. And it's, it's such uh, a comprehensive picture. It's a picture of a person who doesn't appreciate what they, they have, and they set off on their own, squandering what they, they do have. And this is the idea of, of Jesus' parable. Someone who drives themselves out into the world, Someone who has everything they need, and they use it up for their own purposes, thinking they know better. And this is the heart underneath Jesus' parable, and it's how it gained the name. It's a parable of an unappreciative child who doesn't realize how good he has it in his father's house, thinking that the grass is greener somewhere else, and he leaves taking his inheritance with him, and he loses everything. and has to come home with his tail between his legs, figuratively speaking. Uh, and so I do want to look at the parable of the prodigal son before we get into Ruth. So in your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. And you may have noticed some of these uh, details, but I want to draw them to your attention uh, because we're going to see a lot of the same details in uh, our passage in Ruth this morning. Luke chapter 15. So, verse 13, uh, this is a man who uh, travels to a far country. Sound familiar? Uh, For his own gain, squandering his inheritance, what is rightfully his, back home. Verse 14. There's a famine that creates a problem. And he is driven to near death because he can't eat. He has nowhere to sleep. He has no options. He's lonely. He's got nowhere to turn. And so he must go back. Verse 17 uh, says that when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have had more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You remember last week what the word Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Uh, that, that, that theme is all throughout chapter 1 and really all throughout the book. We're going to be talking about it a lot next week. But here's the parallel. Where I go, there is no bread. And this morning, verse 6, the Lord visits his people. And the Hebrew there says, with bread. Also, uh, we can just skip to the end. Um, 
we know that, that, that he repents, he recognizes his sin, he recognizes that he uh, hitched his wagon to the wrong horse and went back to his father with his tail between his legs, expecting to just be a servant, expecting to be the lowliest of the lowly. That's all Ruth and Naomi can expect when they go back to Bethlehem. But not only does the father welcome them home, not only does he forgive whatever he, what he has squandered, he is loved, he is celebrated, and he is fully restored. And that is such a beautiful picture, you know, jumping forward to verse 24. Here's the other thing I love about the prodigal son and its parallels to Ruth. The one who used up the wealth of the father, and he comes home, and the father does not hold it against him. The father is so rich that he lavishes him with good gifts and wealth yet again. And so, the human lesson underneath all this, the father in the parable, the God of Israel in, in Ruth, even if the children change, even if the children run off on their own, the father never changes. The love of the father never shifts. The love of the father never wanes. He always loves his own. He always cares for. He always welcomes back. He always celebrates those who are called according to his purpose. So with that, we're going to cover chapter one in two parts. Uh, and so I have an assignment for you. If you've been in our Wednesday night Bible study, uh, if you've taken a hermeneutics class, Step one in how to determine what the main point, the main themes of a text are, look what's repeated. It's a simple Hebrew tool. We're dumb, we're thick-headed, say it again and again and again so we get the point. As I read the chapter, I want you to pay close attention, to see who the observant people are, and to see what is repeated. And I'll tell you it's a little trickier in the English than it is in the Hebrew. However, um, look for synonyms. Look at ideas that are repeated again and again, and we'll, uh, and by putting, there's two main ones, and by putting them together, uh, we'll get the purpose of this text. So I'm going to read in Ruth, uh, beginning reading in verse 6. I'm going to read through the end of the, the uh, chapter, but we're really uh, going to stop at about verse 17. Uh, then she, being Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law and uh, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, kissed them, and they lift their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And where you will be buried, may, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they reached Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred before them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your sovereign hand, that this is indeed our Father's world. Let us never forget that though the wrong seems oh so strong, our God is the ruler yet. Because Lord, we are a people who forget. We are a people running after the Moabs of our own making looking for security and comfort in this world, not trusting your promises, putting our hope in sight and not faith. Lord, we are weak and feeble people in desperate need of a Savior. And we praise you for our Savior, that our kinsman Redeemer would come, would stand in our place, would give us his righteousness, would take on our sin, would leave us with his Spirit, so that even though our hearts are prone to wander, we never can wander from your fold because we are your sheep indeed. Lord, we praise you for these, these texts in the scripture where we see ourselves on the page. We see ourselves as orphans and widows with no hope and no inheritance. But as prodigals, you welcome your children home. You sought us, bought us, and you draw us into your loving arms. And we praise you for this. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you remember the setting of the book of Ruth, last week uh, they leave the promised land, Judea, for not only a land that is not promised, but a land that is cursed, Moab, a land that's, that's forbidden. Elimelech leads his family in opposition to the will of God and dies in a foreign land. His sons marry foreign women and they die in a foreign land. And now we are left with the three women. No home, no children, no future. A hopeless situation for a woman in the ancient Near East. 
And in those first five verses, it is dark and it is hopeless. There is no mention of God. There is no hope for restoration. But as we said last week, the book does not end there. It begins there. And it goes from a place of darkness to the light of God shining. And now something changes. The, the, the light begins to peek through the dark clouds. But before we get into the narrative, uh, I want to go back to our assignment. Verse 6 introduces our two main themes in the remainder of the chapter. If you're paying attention, if you're studious, you notice what is, what is repeated more often than anything? Return, turn back, gone back, brought back. What we don't know in English is that in Hebrew, that is one word. The entire time, shub, again, again, and again. This word means to turn around. But it's also implied that you should turn around to where you were supposed to be in the first place. It means to turn around, but it also means repentance. And it is often used exactly that way. Uh, we looked at Deuteronomy 30 a couple weeks ago, but I want to go back there. And I, wanna, I want you to see the picture of how this same Hebrew word is used. If you can turn to Deuteronomy 30, uh, we're, we're going to look at the first two verses of this section. And the, the first three verses of the section, excuse me, and the last two verses. Because in this great section of call, God's promise for forgiveness, God's call to repentance, this idea of shub, to, to, to turn back, is associated with the faith of the people and the mercy of God. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you, okay, these things uh, come upon you. Then you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord has driven you. And you return, Shub, to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you uh, again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is beautiful in the Hebrew because at the end it's the same idea but in the reverse order. Look at verse 9. The Lord your God, it, it, it begins with the, um, the, uh, the uh, fulfillment and works its way back through the process. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn, same word, to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Here is a crystal clear example of why repeated words are so essential in studying the Bible. And if you're a Hebrew reader, this is jumping off the page to you. Because God is a God who requires repentance. He requires a turning because every other option means death. Every other option means condemnation and judgment. But when you turn to him, it is promise and it is favor and it is mercy and it is grace and it is blessing and it is abundance. So the directional change in Ruth draws our attention to a spiritual and theological change. 
It is a theological statement throughout this entire section. There is an about face. There is a turning that is going on. And the turning that Ruth and uh, Naomi are doing in their bodies reflects the turning that is going on in Ruth's heart. And that's what we're going to look at. Number two, the second repeated idea. Anyone pick up on this? So in verse 6, they return, and then the Lord visits the land. Anyone notice the, the, the sovereign hand of God through this entire passage? Ruth may not be a joyful woman, but she understands who God is. Every step of the way, every action is attributed to the work, the, the, the hand of God. Shub is mentioned 11 times. The sovereign hand of God is mentioned nine times at the end of this chapter. This text brings attention to the hand of God that is guiding the turn. And that is imploring the people to trust him. And think about this, this a picture of repentance. You can do so many sermon illustrations with toddlers. You ever seen a toddler who's just so fixated on a ball or a toy, and he throws the ball, and it runs out into the street? He doesn't care what's happening. All he sees is that ball. And he's just running his little happy heart right out into traffic. And what does a loving father do? Because his steps are a lot bigger than the child's. The child's running like Marvin the Martian, his little feet are moving. You know, and the father takes one step and gently turns him in the other direction and points him at a bigger and better ball. As such a, a appropriate picture of the loving hand of the father who just gently turns his wayward children back. This little toddler is not even aware that his father touched him. He's so focused on the ball. He doesn't know that he just saved his life. How many of you have done stupid things that should have led you to jail or to the grave or some other consequence where the Lord steered you, the Lord's sovereign hand, you look back and there is no way I should have survived that. There is no way I should still be standing here today. Naomi recognizes, the writer of the book of Ruth recognizes that this is all orchestrated by God himself. And so in a greater way, than a father turning his son away from the street. Our father, our heavenly father, turns our circumstances and our hearts to repent. He turns us from what will kill and harm us to what will feed and nourish us. And he doesn't just welcome us back. He's not just here passively waiting for us to come back. He gives us and grants us Repentance unto life. Uh, this, if you were in our Acts study a couple weeks ago, uh, Acts eleven eighteen. At the very end uh, of this section in Acts, when it's confirmed that the Gentiles have received faith and, and are responding, excuse me, have received the Holy Spirit and are responding to the gospel, look at the look at how the the, the saints respond. Verse eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. Why did they glorify God? Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
we are so wayward, we are so helpless, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that unless God grants us even repentance, we're still in the land of Moab. Uh, this, is a, this is a text about turning. This is a text about the sovereignty of God. And while it is very human, it is very divine. Because it is the Lord who is orchestrating and directing them. And as he's turning their path, he is turning their hearts as well. And so before we get into this, I know we're setting a lot of groundwork up early. I want us to think, how many times, like Naomi and Ruth, have we been disappointed and upset? Because our great plans, my great plans, that were exactly what I think I needed, failed. How many times are we so disappointed because we, we see the grass greener and we think we're going to feast for a year. And we get over there and it's just thorns and thistles. It's like, man, I, I miss this one. And how many times, instead of what we wanted, has what the Lord has in store for us been so much better, so much sweeter, He lets us run right to the edge of the yard. You think this is what you want? I'm going to pull you back before you run out into traffic. I don't know about you, but it's every time. Every time I think I know what's going to happen, I am wrong. Every time I think this is what's going to be best for me, I have to be humbled. And every time the Lord does something better and exactly what I needed. And that has cured me, and I will never do it again. If, if, if you believe that, I got some investments for you. But this book, this section especially, reminds us that God is good in everything he does. And at the right time, he turns his people back. They were there for 10 years plus. Why did it take God 10 years to turn them back? Why did it take God 10 years to restore the bread to Bethlehem? I don't know. Because he's more patient than we are. But we know that he's good. And we know that he's sovereign. And then we are tempted to ask, Lord, why do you take so long in us? Why did you let me, leave me in my sin for 27 years? Why am I still struggling with this particular sin? I don't know. But he's sovereign and he's good. Because if I was God, I'd get tired of me. If I was God, I would run out of patience because I am that, that stubborn child. You turn your eye on me for a second, I am running back into the street. Uh, Brett mentioned it earlier in, in the prayer about the, uh, the uh, sheep. Uh, you guys ever seen that uh, video? It just, just hit me. Where, where the, uh, the uh, sheep is in the ditch and the, and, and the farmer comes up and like they're, they're pulling the sheep out of the ditch. He has wedged himself into like a one-foot space. And this happy little sheep is just bouncing out of the ditch, takes about six bounces, and then goes right back in the same ditch. If any of you young guys want to know what pastoral ministry is like, uh, it's kind of what it feels like. If anyone's not a, uh, a, a, a Christian here, you want to feel like what it, me- what it feels like to be a Christian, it's kind of what it feels like. Hey, I'm good. I'm just, I- I'm, I'm Tigger bouncing down the road, and then I fall into the same ditch that I just got out of. And if we were God, we would not forgive us. Praise God that he is more patient and merciful and gracious than we are. 
And just a kind of the pastoral exhortation, when your brother and sister sins again and again, your brother or sister sins against you, we should look to our gracious God and remember how often we sin and how often we jump right back into the ditch. So, in our text here, the Lord visited his people, and he gives them food. So remember at the beginning, last week we were asking, where is God in this text? What has he been doing all along, and now we see his perfect plan at the perfect time? The prodigals have rolled around in the pigsty long enough. Okay, you've had your fun. You've indulged yourself. Can you let me be God now? Can you trust me now? Even though you've wandered away, I'm going to leave you breadcrumbs, all puns intended, back to where I need you to be. This is our story. We don't learn our lesson right away. How many of us have gone off on our own search for greener pastures? And God continues to call us back. Even if it takes a while, turning from the Moabs of our own creation is only by the grace of God. One more thing in verse 6, and we'll move a little faster. Um, the Hebrew here draws attention to the reader. This, in the Hebrew, uh, points people to the purpose. The Lord visits his people, and the purpose in the Hebrew is alliterated. Lamed, lamed, lamed. To give to them bread. It's not food. Um, here's one of the places where uh, the, most of the modern translations kind of drop the ball. It's not generic food. It is bread. Give to them lechem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. It is a full play on words. You left the house of bread because there was a famine. Now the house of bread is back in business. In the Lord's timing, he brings them back to the land of bread. Much more on that next week. Uh, the other thing that's repeated a lot is Bethlehem, and we'll get to that at the, at the end of this, this section. So, verse 7. They now set out to return. Uh, you're going to see that word again and again and again. And on the way, they begin to talk. Naomi's like every good mother-in-law. She's got plenty of advice, most of it not good. Sorry. Um, too far, probably. Some of you are groaning. Some of you are nodding. I'll just leave it at that. I didn't really mean it, did I? I don't know. Let's get back on track. Uh, Stick with the texture, he said. Yep, she's. <laughs> um, so Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, "What'd she say? Go return." What is Naomi doing here? Well, number one, she's a discouraged, bitter woman. Uh, number two, she's telling them it's going to be easier in Moab. Pragmatically speaking, look out for your own interests. Your mother will, will take you in. It'll be easier in your your father's home. And for, a, for young women in their 20s who are in prime marrying age, where there is no corporate ladder for a woman, she needs to get, get married or live in a life of poverty, it's a lot more appealing back in Moab. But even in her bitterness, she appeals to the sovereignty and goodness of God. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Probably one of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament Kindly here is the Hebrew word chesed. You have shown covenant loyalty. You have shown faithfulness. 
may the Lord deal with you in the same way as you have dealt with me. And then in verse 8, may the Lord grant you that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi's pretty certain here. You go, you're two good-looking women. You go back to Moab, you'll have a husband in no time. Go do that. That'll be easier for you. She loves them. Her life is not an appealing one. And even so, she calls the Lord's blessing on them in their departure. And then they lifted up their voices and they weep. Loud weeping in Jewish culture. It is a cultural norm. This is not an easy decision. On face value, with everything we know right now, this is a lose-lose situation. I lose my mother-in-law, who's really my mother. She calls them daughters. And I go away from the people of my husband or I go back to probably what's a better option on face value. So I was thinking about this this week. This parallels the call on a Christian. I think too many people in their evangelistic zeal and uh, optimistic heartedness say, come follow Jesus, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. If we're honest, if you want easy, don't follow Jesus. If you want your whole family to love you, stay with your family and stay home. If you want security on earth, turn back. There is no guarantee it gets easier. It will probably get harder. And when you present that message to people, the call is to come and die, our flesh weeps. Our flesh cries out because we don't want to hear that. We don't want to have to make that choice. It's made me think of the rich young rulers. So if you turn to Mark chapter 10. We're not going to read the entire account. Uh, you should be familiar with the account of the rich young ruler. I'm just going to look at the lesson at the end. Uh, but if you don't know the rich young ruler, uh, it's this very righteous, at least in his own eyes, young man, comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking the right question. But he's asking a question about eternal life and spiritual things. When Jesus says, well, you know what the law says, keep the commandments. I've kept them all. He is hoping to attain eternal riches with temporary obedience. And then Jesus lays down the ultimatum. He knew where his heart idol was. Leave behind your security blanket. Give all you have away and then follow me. And the man leaves with a heavy heart. Let's jump down to the end, verse 29. Right before that, Peter says, See, we have left everything and followed you. Here is the gospel promise. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Here's what the gospel does promise. Even if you have nothing in this world, if you have Christ, it is better than mothers and fathers and houses and jobs and riches. He is worth leaving everything behind. And if you think anything is better than him, you don't deserve him. And you will walk away like the rich young man, still clutching onto these things that moth and rust destroy. For my sake and for the gospel, the gospel is equal with Christ. Because the gospel is Christ. 
the gospel points us to the person and work of Christ. The promise that if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. And Ruth believed the gospel. We'll see that in a few moments. Not explicitly, but implicitly. Not stated, but shown. So let's go on. If you leave behind, turn from house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold? Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. The reality of being a Christian is it often gets a lot harder before it gets easier. And while there is difficulty in the short term, there is great joy and peace. But what is most important, uh, we like to read the house and brothers and sisters and mothers. Oh, like, like Job, you trust in the Lord who will restore all these things with persecutions. Those come too. And in the age to come, eternal life. That is the reward. That is why it is worth following Christ. Not because it gets easy. But because you will be with him forever. And so in that sense, as we look through Ruth and looking at the rich young ruler, repentance is essential for eternal life. You cannot follow Christ if you are tethered to this world. You cannot swim with an anchor around your uh, with an anchor around your ankle. You must leave it all behind, everything. And you must trust that God is sovereign and God is good and that he will restore more than what you have left behind. Because any gospel that promises good without repentance is a lie. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot have one foot in Moab and one foot in Judea. You must say Christ is worth it all or Christ is not worth it at all. So when this choice is presented before Orpah and before Ruth, they say what any good uh, daughter-in-law would say. No, uh, jumping into verse 10 now. Uh, No, we will not return with you to your people. Excuse me. No, we will return with you to your people. Oh, man, how many times have I heard people say, I will repent and believe. I I am going to do this. I am going to follow Jesus without counting the cost. Orpah spoke way too soon. Sure, I'm going to come with you. Of course, her emotions are responding. That's why I don't trust emotional conversions. Because right now, her tears are doing the thinking, but she has not counted the cost. Ruth, she is bitter, but she is convincing, and she, she has wisdom. Okay. Or excuse me, not, not Ruth, Naomi. Um, she gives three affectionate cultural reasons for her daughters, as she calls them, to leave her and go back to Moab. She's going to make her case. She's gonna get, here's how you count the cost. Here's what it'll be like if you return to Moab. Moab, here's what it'll be like if you stay with me. Number one in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? Now, you also don't get this in the English. In the Hebrew, this is, this is graphic. This is vulgar. I don't have any sons in my guts, she says. 
my stomach, my intestines are empty. She wants to shock them that they may become your husbands. Now, this sounds really weird in our ears because you're like, what? These are 20-year-old women. Why is she talking about a baby in her stomach now? But Naomi is assuming the provision for leveret marriage. And so the word leveret means husband's brother. Because in that culture, the family name was everything. And so in Jewish tradition, if your family was, con- was to continue, your family needed to step in and do it. So if a man in the family dies without offspring, uh, he's given an opportunity to continue the family name through one of his family. And you had an obligation. If your brother died and his wife survived, you take her as your wife so that his name continues for the sake of his brother. Because their name was everything. This same term for your brother's wife, um, they didn't have a sister-in-law then. Uh, I I wish our translations would keep your brother's wife and not use sister-in-law, but that's the same term that we get in Deuteronomy 25. I want you to see this this too, Uh, because this is exactly what goes on in the book of Ruth. You wonder in the book of Ruth when we get there later, why is he taking his shoe off and, you know, what what is all this about? Uh, This is actually prescribed. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. Look at this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall shall go into her, that gets awkward at family dinners, and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The lever at marriage or the kinsman redeemer. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed uh, to the name of, the, of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the du- duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elder of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Man, we think our cultures are, our customs are weird. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's not a compliment. You see how deeply this is ingrained into Hebrew culture. Hence the grounds and the importance of the kinsman redeemer and the theme of the entire book. Because they, Naomi and Ruth, they needed someone who was from their family line. Someone who was just like them, closely related to save them. And for us... We need someone from our family line, just like us, close to us to save us. That is the only way we can, our names will not be blotted out from the Israel of God. We mentioned this last week, but this is why Jesus must come from the line of David. So that he can save his people from their sins, to be their kinsman redeemer. This is why Jesus must come from the line of Adam. So that he can save us from our sins. He can be our kinsman redeemer. Otherwise, our name deserves to be blotted out. But our brother stepped in and took us, orphans, the wife no one wanted, 
and brought us into the family. All right, that's reason number one. Reason number two that Naomi gives, kind of along the same lines, uh, but her, again, her reasoning is interesting here. Verse, um, yeah, verse, verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband, and if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Wait a second. The only way to do the honorable thing to your dead husbands is to marry within the family. And not only do I not have a husband, even if I had a husband today and I got started tonight, would you wait till these little boys grow up? That is a weird proposition. Imagine changing the diapers of someone you're thinking you're, you're going to have to marry one day. It is a little ridiculous. And so Naomi's trying to paint this ridiculous picture for them. Come on, be sensible. Go back to Moab. And then the third one, verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has been against me. Number three, are you really willing to be single and bitter like me? This is not the life I want for you. No wonder Naomi's bitter, because everything is about her. She knows God is sovereign, but she forgets that God is good. And that is a real problem. How many people think like this? How many people can easily admit that God is God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and yet think that he's not good? That is as dangerous as thinking that God is good and he's not sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient. We must remember that he is both. Not only is he in control of all things, but all things are good. All things are for his glory. If you miss one of those, you will be bitter like Naomi, or you will be optimistic and a fool, like many who think that everything is going to be good, but don't trust the God who even in what is evil can bring good out of it. All right, so the pattern continues. Verse 14, they weep again. They lift up their voices and they weep again. This is heartbreaking because Naomi's pointing another hopeless picture. And the symbolism is so vivid. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, Orpah loves Naomi. She didn't want to leave at, at first, but her kiss goodbye is symbolic. She loves Naomi, but she loves her own comfort more. I don't have the faith that you have, Naomi. I can't go back to what I don't know. I'm going to go to back to what I do know. How many of our loved ones have we presented Christ to and given the promises in the gospel but they prefer what they know to what they do not know, to what is easy, to what requires them to leave everything behind. But Ruth, she clings, she holds fast to Naomi. This is a beautiful word because this is the same word that is in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24. Be on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This picture of Ruth holding to Naomi is a covenant commitment. Sickness and in health, to death do us part. 
I belong to you. It is a picture of clinging to the woman and therefore to her people and to her God. And so for us, true repentance means turning from all else, all worldly attachments. Many of you, even believers, are struggling right now because you have a divided heart. Because you still believe that things might be better in Moab. So I want to keep that door open. I don't want to shut it. Because if what God calls me to doesn't work out, I can still take off and go back there. True repentance is leaving everything behind. Even when nothing is is promised. Because you know that God is good and God is sovereign. So after this interchange, verse 15, Naomi says, See, or in the Hebrew, behold, look, your sister-in-law has gone back. She has returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Like the rich young ruler, it was too hard for Orpah. And based on the information, you can't really blame her. But there's more going on underneath the surface. Here's what we don't get in our culture. The, reader, or the writer brings this up, goes back to her people and her gods. Because leaving had theological as well as familial implications. So in that culture, your family and your family's gods were synonymous. You worshiped where your family worshiped. You loved what your family loved. You served what your family served. So this is not just a decision about security and future. This is a decision about fidelity and worship. Who will you serve? Who will you put your faith in? If you reject the people of God, you reject the God of the people. You reject the people of God. You are, by extension, rejecting the God of the people. That's why today, when someone in Islam or Hinduism leaves their religion to follow Christ, they leave their family. Because there is great shame for turning on your family and your family's gods. They are seen the same. This, this idea that existed then still exists in most Eastern cultures. And so Orpah is not just making a pragmatic decision. She's making a theological decision. And then we get into verse 16 the great turning point and most profound statement in the entire book. So just up front, um, we're going to unpack this next time. Uh, We're not going to go into this this week. Uh, I want to use this as the close of this section, and we're going to spend a lot more time in it because it deserves our attention. So when Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. I love that Ruth has been paying attention. She doesn't have Naomi's attitude, but she has Naomi's theology. May the Lord do more to me, if anything but death makes me depart from you. If this is not her moment of conversion, this is certainly her confession of faith. Uh, this parallels John 6. We'll get into John 6 more next week. Um, but if you're familiar with the context of John 6, Jesus gives this 
powerful exhortation that he is the bread of life. And it's a hard thing to hear. Many people turn and, and walk away after Jesus says this. But here's what he says. I want you to see the parallels here in verse 63 of John 6. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. How do we know that God grants repentance without the spirit? There is, we can't muster up enough faith and courage to turn from what we were serving before. We can't do it. It's impossible with us. So we trust the work of the Spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There is a good news. There is a gospel. The words of spirit and life that Ruth believed, even though she did not know Jesus by name. But as always, verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would, who would betray him. He knew that Ruth would stay and Orpah would leave. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is the loving, sovereign hand of the Father. And after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Making the argument from the lesser to the greater, this is what's going on in Ruth. Turn away. This is too hard to hear. Don't you want to go back to Moab? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Ruth is making a, a similar confession. Where would I go? I know who the true God is. Later in chapter 2, Boaz will recognize that she is seeking favor with the Lord, not just clinging to Naomi. To whom shall we go? We believe in you. We'll leave everything behind. And that's why I love this. It's such a great gospel parallel. So, um, many of you studious people out there, as Ruth makes this, this turn, and again, we'll get into it more next time. Uh, you might be thinking critically, thanks, Anna. Um, well, Pastor Tim, we read from Deuteronomy 23 last week. Uh, 23, 2, and 3. This is important for this, this, this whole discussion, and then we're going to land the plane. 23, 2, and 3. No one born of a foreign union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It's pretty strong terms. Because they did not meet you with bread. Uh, uh, we'll leave it there in, in verse 3. How do we reconcile that with what we see in Ruth right now? Because spoiler alert, Ruth's going to get a husband from among Israel. She's going to be in the line of David, in the line of Christ. How do we reconcile this? No Moabite forever. That's why the idea of her confession of faith, her covenantal commitment, the, the, the marital language is so important. Ruth has turned from Moab. She has denounced her old ways. She has denounced her former life and her false gods, and she has turned to Yahweh. She now clings to the living God. She no longer sees herself as a Moabite. I now follow the God of Israel. He is my God. They are my people. I am no longer a Moabite. 
That is the gospel. In the same way, true repentance and faith is renouncing ourselves, renouncing our old identity. I am no longer that man, that woman I used to be. They have died. I have risen to new life in Christ. I am a new creation. I am no longer a Moabite. I am an Israelite. I am the Israel of God. It is turning from that old man, putting him to death, and clinging to Christ. Holding on to the only hope you have, the God who can save. While our theology is stated in the New Testament, it is shown in the Old Testament. While our theology is indicated in the New Testament, it is illustrated in the Old Testament. So, in conclusion, this chapter follows a pattern of conversion. It begins with death and hopelessness. It transitions into repenting of the old life, the recognition of the goodness of the new life, the choosing to follow the Lord and committing to him. And as a former prodigal myself, I love this story because I was that guy. I deserved to be Elimelech. I deserved to die in my foolish decisions and for rejecting the Lord that I grew up hearing about. But once the son repents, the loving father welcomes home the prodigal son. These prodigal daughters, even more so preparing a kinsman redeemer to fully accept and care for, to fully graft them back into the family. And brothers and sisters, fellow prodigals, we should identify with this story and rejoice. Because even while we turn and go after other things, our God does not turn. Our God welcomes us back. And for the rest of you, if you are prodigals who are refusing to return, if you think the grass is better in Moab, repent and believe. Because it is only certain death. There is one God and one God only. There are no other gods. There is nothing else that can save you. You need a kinsman redeemer. You need Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man, to stand in your place. And that is what we are preparing for at this table. That God works out all things for good for those who love him. Those who are called according to his purpose. Those who he has conformed to the image of the Son. This table signifies our kinsman redeemer. Christ became like us in order to redeem us. And he is sovereign and he is good. And every time we partake of this table, we remember that. That we are partakers with a good and gracious God.